0: You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to (laughs) Unparalleled Studios.
1: Studios. (gasps) I said no. Foster
0: Foster Care Nation! Nation. Listen up. up. This is
1: Foster Care in Unparalleled Trinity.
0: Strength for the Powerless courage for the fearful hope and healing for wounded hearts hello and welcome back to foster care and unparalleled journey with jason and no amanda we got a kid going to the doctor again today and she is um going on to take care of that while I am going to sit here and have a conversation with our guest today. We have Jennifer Asher with us. Yeah! All right, today we have uh, Jennifer Asher here to tell her story about adoption and her journey through this whole process. How are you doing today, Jennifer?
1: I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. If I could get this silly tech to work with me, um, hopefully everybody listening has no idea what I'm talking about because I'll have it all edited out, and it'll sound perfect and professional wonderful. if not, I apologize ahead of time because um yeah, I'm not always awesome with it. I'm not a professional yet, I'm working on it though uh, but you know, Jennifer, I found you with your story, and your story mirrors a lot of other people, um not exactly. I think yours is is way more unique than a lot of them, but I know a lot of people who just struggle with things like infertility um, or, or other problems in in childbearing and end up adopting kids. And I know that that had something to do with, with your journey into adoption. Can you just tell us a little bit about your story and how you got involved with the whole process?
1: Yeah. Um, and actually I, it's funny. I, I, um, I wasn't going to include this in my book and, um, I had like maybe two sentences about it. Um, and my editor said, so many people can relate to this. I really think if you're willing to talk about it, that it would be important. So I had, um, I went through two miscarriages and um, the first one was very shocking, unexpected. We had never tried to have kids before and I got pregnant almost immediately. And after several weeks um, miscarried Um, I, I kind of detailed that, that journey at the beginning of my book. Um, And after enough time had passed, I went to my husband and said, I think we should try again. And he said, are you kidding? Did you not remember like what we went through and how miserable you were and how crabby you were? He said, you want to do that again? And I said, yeah, I want to have a kid. And he said, well, I'm willing to try it one more time, but if that doesn't work, I'm not doing it again. And I said, all right. And I got pregnant again, almost instantly and had a second miscarriage. And literally the night that I miscarried, I woke up in the middle of the night and I went onto the computer and I started researching adoption. Um, so that's how I, I got into it.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a hard thing for most people to go through. We, we didn't really experience that in our journey with, with me and my wife. Um, that's not something I have a whole lot of experience with, but I know a lot of guys who talk about having gone through that and that can be a really difficult journey for dads. I can only imagine it has to, how much more difficult that would be for, for a mom to go through that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it it was, it was tough. I was pretty goal oriented at the time. I was pretty single-mindedly focused on having a child. Um, unlike a lot of people, it wasn't hugely important to me to have a biological child. Um, that wasn't really a factor for me, which, you know, the more I've talked to people, that's very unusual. And a lot of people before they decided to adopt kind of have to go through this major debate within themselves. Could they, could they parent a child that wasn't biologically theirs? For whatever reason, that was not an issue for us. We always accepted it. We never really questioned whether a child that, joined our family through adoption would be any different to us than a child that joined our family biologically
0: well as we were talking earlier you know you you mentioned about your desires throughout your life to uh, around having kids and that you weren't really focused on having like a whole house full of kids or anything that was just never your goal right
1: That is true. I I never wanted to have kids at all. Um, The the, the first sentence of my book is something to the effect of for the first 29 years of my life, I was sure I would never have children. Um, I went through kind of an early midlife crisis at the age of 29 and determined that something was missing from my life and that maybe a child was it and that this was something we should try. Now, I had no idea that six years later I would have three um it was a big shock to all of us me especially um but it's the best thing that ever happened to me
0: so when you started started having those thoughts that hey it's time to have a kid I think um what 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 sparked that idea that you thought it was time to have a kid in your life
1: um well, as I told you earlier, it was a single conversation. I had a friend who was turning 30 and uh, she said to me, I, I brought her a gift and I kind of laughed at her and said, ha ha, you have to be 30. And she said, well, you only have one year left. And I was like, oh my goodness, how could that be? And I had kind of this mental image of 30. My mother had children very young and there were three of us by the time she was 30. So like in my mind, she was an adult so for whatever reason, at 29, I even though I'd been married for eight years, I I didn't I guess I didn't really think of myself as an adult yet. I was just living this fun little married life. And and uh, when it occurred to me that I was going to be 30, I was like, ooh, I, don't, I that's like an adult, and I haven't had any kids yet, and and we're just kind of playing around. So I did some soul searching and went home that night and said, you know, I think we should have a kid. <laughs>
0: And I'm certain that that didn't surprise your husband at all.
1: Oh yeah. No. Um, he was, he said, absolutely not. He said, no way we made this agreement when we first started dating, we were never having kids and, and you can't just change your mind like that. Um, so we thought about it for about six months. Um, at some point, I said, "You know, maybe I should try something different and change my life in a different way." And I went back to school and I got a master's degree in psychology, totally changed my career from accounting to psychology. and um but while I was going through the program i i I was like, You know, but I still feel like we maybe should try this having children thing. And I tried to be subtle about it. And I would say, you know, I was taking a child development class and would say to my husband, oh, look, wouldn't it be cool to like watch a child develop? And he was like, excuse me, we've discussed this. (laughs) (laughs) But eventually he came around and said, I guess I'm not going to win. So I guess we'll try. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah apparently he's not very well versed in the rules of a woman's right <laughs> to uh her prerogative to have a completely different decision at any given moment
1: yeah he he figured it out we've been married quite a while already
0: y- you've taught him huh he, he knows well now yeah that that's what a good marriage looks like my wife has taught me many many different things that i thought i knew were true and apparently i was wrong so it's been okay though
1: I knew I liked you that you figured that out.
0: <laughs> I had to at a young age. <laughs> My wife was never um she's never been the mousy type of of woman she she doesn't she doesn't hide her opinions very well
1: yeah i'm I'm the same way. I think I'd like her too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of glad you had to do something else today. I don't need to be ganged up on here today. <laughs> Well, I have to ask. You, you said you, you got your master's in psychology. I'm, I'm not even going to lie. That's something that I'm interested in doing. I love that idea because psychology is such an interesting thing. Child child psychology is like, holy cow, this stuff is so neat, especially after we've had all the kids come to our home that we have. I think I deserve at least like an honorary bachelor's or something <laughs> for the things I've had to learn, but you know, as what, did would you do with, with that education as, as you move forward, did you work in, in the field of psychiatry?
1: Not very long. Um, I, I did do a couple of years. Um, I worked at, um, in a hospital setting as my, um, practicum for school. Um, and I did that for about a year. And then I worked in a, in a school setting, um, a school for kids with behavioral disorders. Um, and I did that for about a year. Um, and then my daughter was born, um, and I stayed home for a little bit, but, um, because I was so grateful for her adoption and, and it was in the end, such a great experience for me. Um, I wanted to get into the field of adoption. I first worked as a birth mother counselor for a short time. And then, um, when I was looking to adopt my son, my middle child, um, I'm, I somehow met a woman who did um, adoption consulting, working with families and helping families through the process. And I said, This is what I want to do. I want to help other families. We went through so much with my daughter's adoption um, that I just want to help make that journey an easier one for other families. So I worked for several years as an adoption consultant um until i had 3 and got overwhelmed and then just said this is too much i need to take some time off
0: yeah uh you know I, I talk about having a lot of kids we have 7 kids but we rarely have had two awful many at the same time i mean right now um well the the number changes every day actually right now in our house um i think i think today five kids woke up in our house wow. i think yeah uh, <laughs> one That's of those a lot. Yeah, we we have an adoptive placement, or not adoptive. We have a, a foster placement right now, and uh, and so we, the number just changes from time to time. But I totally understand what you mean by being overwhelmed by having that much plus working a full time job, especially in a setting that involves some psychology. Right, you're you're dealing with hard things.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it definitely. Um you definitely take on the problems of your patients and your clients. um, And, and you have to separate yourself. Um, I I was just talking to someone about this recently and, and in the hospital setting, it was a little bit easier because I was dealing with kind of extreme disorders. So because I couldn't really personally relate to these extreme disorders, I didn't take them on as, as much or as heavily as I did with people who I could more relate to. Um, Actually with the adoption uh, families, um, when I worked as a consultant, um, I, I was even it was more so because these were people who were going through the same things that I was going through or had gone through, and so I could relate to them so closely that you know I felt their pain. Um, but uh, it, it was very rewarding.
0: Now, one of the things I uh, I hear you talking about there, the adoptive disorders, that you know. I don't know how familiar you are with those, with the things that go go on, the disorders that that, that tend to show up in kids who have been adopted because, I mean, that's, it's trauma, basically. That's what where causes most of these things. And kids who are adopted have trauma. Things like, even if it's just as simple as just an adoption trauma, something that I had not really heard a lot about until the last couple of years where people talk about that. But I also know that when you're adopting a kid, sometimes you know their backstory and sometimes you don't. Um, did, when you got your kids, were, th- were they from a background? Were they older kids or newborns or or what did that look like for your family?
1: Well, my kids um, were, I were both adopted at birth, essentially. My daughter, we heard of the day she was born. We actually got her the day after she was born. My son, I watched him be born. So we were very fortunate. Um, to not only have them from very, very obviously early ages, um, but also to get to know a little bit about their birth families, which um, my daughter's now 20 and my son is 17, almost 18. Um, back then, it wasn't as common. Um, you know, there were some open adoptions, but there were a lot of closed adoptions. Um both with the agencies that we worked with at the time didn't really support open adoption. Um, they didn't really encourage it. Um, we we kind of pushed it. You know, we got to meet the birth mothers, uh, both of them. When my my kids were born, we got to meet my daughter's birth father as well. Um, and we took extra steps to make sure that they could find us and could keep in touch with us. Now, my my daughter's birth parents, um, we did not hear from them for. Uh, almost three years, they finally found us. Um, we had opened a, um, a special email account. Again, this is different. It was kind of it was kind of a different world back then. It was 20 years ago. And, and there was a lot more secrecy and, and there were a lot more closed adoptions, but we didn't want that for our kids. We wanted them to always know where they came from. And so we opened a special email account just for them with, you know, that the email was my daughter's name. So they wouldn't forget it. And about three years later, they contacted us. And, um, you know, now not that we're close with them, we don't correspond with them frequently or anything, but you know, now through Facebook, we're Facebook friends with both my kids, birth parents. So we keep up with them that way.
0: Oh, wow. How amazing is that? Yeah. Cause I remember 20 years ago, 20 Mm -hmm. years ago, I was, um, I was just having gotten out of the army. And when I had when I was in the Army, I believe is the very first time I even knew about email and what it was and how to sign into a o l and or Juno and let the little thing make all of its fun noises and download some email and that's all there was at the time and I, yeah, I, I still
1: have that same a o l account <laughs> I
0: remember seeing that and thinking she has an a o l account address <laughs> <laughs> that's old. <laughs> But but it's amazing that it's turned into what it has to where we can st- we can still communicate and connect with birth families or or other people who may or may not have had a, a, a something to do with the kid in their early years or known the family and be able to tell stories and allow a kid to understand where they really came from.
1: Well, and I felt very strongly about that. I had read a book um, called I think it's the twenty things adopted kids which their adopted parents knew by Sherry Eldridge. And um, when we first started the adoption process, I had read this and we had planned on adopting internationally, um, which is what my whole story is about. It, it, all these crazy things that happen with our international adoption. But with international adoption, you often don't know really anything about the parent, the child's backstory, about the birth parents or where they came from or anything else. Um, but one of the points that she made in her book was how important it was for adoptive kids to know as much as possible about their history and that it should never be a surprise to them. And actually, I kind of put this together through the campaigning for my book. And the very first version of the book that I wrote was my daughter when she was less than a year old. I wrote this book and I have it handy. And it is um, it is the book that I wrote for her when she and, and you know, again, this is like kind of pre-technology so now you can do these books online and it's no big deal. And it's super easy. When I did it, I had to cut out, I had ordered this special kit from online and I had to cut out photos and cut out text and paste it on the pages and then mail it in and have a book made. But this was the first version of my daughter's story. And I used to read it to her at night. So she would always know what I knew. She would always have the same story. It was concrete And she could know where she came from and she could always go back to it at any age, you know, from the time she was two and couldn't really read, but could just look at the pictures till today when she's 20, she has this physical non-changing version of her history that she could always know she was loved. She was placed in love. Her, Her birth parents, you know, placed her because they wanted her to have a better life and we searched for her all over the world and, and really, truly wanted her. So this was the very first version of that story.
0: Okay. Now, forgive me. I'm ridiculously forgetful. What, what did that end up being an international adoption or was that a domestic adoption?
1: No, she was adopted domestically. Um, which is kind of the whole story of my book is that, you know, kind of what I went through Um we had decided to adopt internationally and went through and jumped through all the hoops and did all the paperwork to adopt internationally. And actually I got sent to Vietnam to adopt a baby. Um, but 20 years ago, there was a lot of turmoil in, with Vietnamese adoptions. Um, the INS, the US INS was investigating the international adoptions from Vietnam at that time. And shortly after I went, they closed all, um, all adoptions from Vietnam. So as you can imagine, while I was there, it was just chaos and going to the embassy, the rules kept changing and they were like investigating everything. And we were convinced that our hotel rooms were bugged and it was, it was crazy. We couldn't believe I you, you know, the, again, that's why I wrote the book was because I went through so much. Um, we came home, we, I, I fell in love with a baby in Vietnam and um, when we came home, the agency called and told us they were terminating all adoptions through Vietnam and we should pick a different country. And so I signed on with another agency and they tried to get me that baby and they determined that there's no way the uh, U.S. immigration would approve this adoption. Then we tried to adopt from like five different countries. And ironically, through phone calls that I made, happened to get a call from a domestic agency um, who had this baby born that day. and
0: did we want her? Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I know um, we've talked to a couple different people about the international adoption and the craziness around some of that. Um, <clears throat> I can see his face. I can't remember his name, but he told his story. They adopted their daughter from China and he he told parts of a story that, that you look at, and I mean, she's in her 20s now, so he can tell these stories, but the things that went on in order to be able to go and do and pick up this baby and come home, it was a big deal. He was like smuggling money into China, literally things that you look at and you go, wait a second, man, this, this almost looks like international drug ring stuff. If you're not careful carrying that much money hidden into the country. And, oh man, that's, that's a big, a big step to have to go through just to adopt a baby.
1: It was crazy. It was crazy. And again, that's why I originally wrote the book. When my daughter was about five, I, um, you know, I had, I lived through this and, and kind of everybody I knew at that time knew little bits of the story. And even like the tiniest portion they were like I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you went through all this. And at some point I realized, you know what? I should write this all down so that she can know someday when she's an adult what we went through to get her, to find her. Um and spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the the, the thing about the, the, the craziest part of this whole story is that she's Vietnamese. And so it wasn't just that I got a call saying, do you want this baby? We were hell bent on we did not want to do a domestic adoption. Um, we felt that we did not want to be matched to a pregnant birth mom and get attached and then have the birth mom change her mind. We were very worried that this would just lead to heartbreak and we didn't want to go through that. This was our first child. It was just not something we were willing to do. So, you know, again, it goes back to, these are the early days of the internet. You couldn't just pull up a list of adoption agencies. I would spend hours and hours online, um, usually in the middle of the night with a pad of paper next to the computer, right. Anytime I could find an adoption agency, I would write down the name and the phone number and then wait until nine o'clock in the morning and call and say, do you do domestic adoptions or international? And um if you do domestic, do you, do you ever place babies that are already born? And they all said, almost never, we don't do that. And I forced them all. I would make them listen to my whole story about going to Vietnam and coming home without a baby and all of this. And I'd say, please just write down my number, just take it. And if something comes up, will you call me? And that's exactly what happened.
0: Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even imagine doing that much work in a time that is, I guess what we'd call pre-Google.
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember the search engines back in the day, and they were nowhere near as good as what we have now. I mean, you had a lot of work you were putting into this. This is something that doesn't sound like it was just uh, kind of a, a willy-nilly choice to try and look and, and pick some information up. You went out and did the hard work to search for all the pieces and parts of this. And, I did and, then to be able to tell your daughter that, that that's what you went through to get her, I, I can only imagine that helps to build that sense of self-worth that we so many people are missing, especially because of some of the things that come through adoption trauma, some of the things that kids go through by losing that first birth family and, and having that story in their head that's written by someone else, by their own perceptions, by little clips of something they've heard somewhere, that there's a reason why they weren't wanted necessarily. and And it changes who that kid becomes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: how fortunate is she not only to have had somebody who thought that through, but also had like that, that whole psychology background because you can understand that way better than I did when we first started.
1: Well, I don't think I really realized it back then. Um, you know, I, I think you can probably remember when you're in the weeds of having a newborn, particularly your very first, um, you know, all I could think about was when I was going to be able to sleep. (laughs) Not about, it wasn't a a pressing concern as to uh, her having a sense of self-worth. It was just, let's keep her fed and dressed and able to sleep at some point. Um, But eventually I, I figured that out.
0: Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, I kept the baby alive today is sometimes that's the whole goal for the day, right? I I know that feeling. It's uh
1: <laughs> Yeah, I you know again a lot of um the whole writing this book has been as much of a journey as I went through to find my daughter. Um but it really brought me back to that and you know at the end of the book is when we went and got her. She was born in Oklahoma and um there's a whole chapter like when I first got her and and I had written something like I've, it's been four hours since I got this baby and I've kept her alive the whole time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know that struggle. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then I went to Walmart cause I didn't have the right kind of formula that they sent home from the, the uh, hospital. And I, I said, you know, and I gathered all these supplies and I'm like, and then I went to pick up my husband at the airport cause he couldn't come with me. He needed to come later in the day. And I said, I'm so proud of myself. I have hunted and foraged and (laughs) and (laughs) provided for this child. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Yes. I know that feeling. I know it all too well because especially when you go to Walmart now used to be you just go get a can of infamil and you were okay. And that's not what's on the shelf anymore. Oh, really? Oh, we, we've got some, you know, the little one we have with us right now, she's, um, you know having been born in her circumstances she has some a couple special needs and so we have one sitting on our shelf that i've never even seen before so you know you, you give them what they need and that's what the doctors decided she needed so that's what we've been going with but yeah it's not nearly as easy as it used to be fortunately my wife is someone who YouTube will go to the store to pick that up because she knows which one it is and where it's at in the store and well me and walmart don't get along i'm just gonna say <laughs> shiny thing syndrome gets in the way. And I, I have a hard time finding what I'm supposed to be there for. Um, I'm sure I'm the only one who deals with that of all the dads out there, but um, maybe some of the moms too, but dads were pretty bad at that for whatever reason. So, you, you know, you talk about this journey and bringing your daughter home and, and the difficulties of it, but you also talked about using the, your, your knowledge, your experience and your education and doing some work as a birth mother counselor. Now, one of the things we talk a lot about, especially in foster care even, is bringing, bringing the birth mom and dad into the equation and not, not just setting them by the wayside. What, is that, what does that look like? What made you decide to become a birth mom counselor, and, and what does that mean?
1: When I did it, um, which was a long time ago, when I worked as a birth mom counselor, I dealt mostly with, um, with pregnant moms who, ha- who were considering adoption. We're um, considering placing their child for adoption, and so I would help them kind of through that thought process, and through the kind of negotiation within themselves of what's best for themselves. Is this selfish? You know, is it selfish to keep the baby? Is it selfish to place the baby? Um, and you know, helping them to identify for themselves what factors were most important to them and what would be best for them and for the child.
0: Now, was that something you did? through an adoption agency or was that something you did through a, through a different agency or your own practice or how did When that... I
1: worked as a birth mom counselor, I did that through an adoption agency.
0: Okay. Okay. Cause yeah. Adoption has changed a lot over the last 50 years. Um, 50 mm-hmm. years ago, there was probably not a such thing as a, as a birth mother counselor. Um, I can okay. only imagine that at that point, it was really um, a bit more of a, um less well thought out process, I guess is a nice way to say it. The stories I've heard, you know, was more or less, I've heard of a lot of stories of, of young women who maybe had a a baby out of bed, out of wedlock, or, um, you know, something was going on and a parent more or less took them in and uh, they had the baby and they were forced to give the baby up for adoption. And there was not a whole lot of services for, for moms.
1: Well, and I think in many cases, that's still, that's still a little bit true. Um, You know, It's something that I think I I don't really know, but I believe that adoption agencies are required to provide, Um, although I'm really not sure about that. But a lot of birth moms um, don't take advantage of it. You know, I worked with birth moms um, when I did this who who really didn't want to talk to me. And they would say, you know, I know what I want to do. I don't really need to waste your time. Um, I would encourage them to spend the time. But, you know, if somebody, doesn't want to talk to you there's there's really no point um you know you're dealing with different kinds of people in in different stages of their lives you know a lot of them are young um some really just kind of know what they want to do some are distracted or on drugs or, or whatever their circumstance is um, and just don't have an interest in that in that service but I think it's good um, for sure when adoption agencies, offer that and and even better when when the birth moms are willing to take advantage of that service
0: oh yeah because I, I can't imagine how important it is for somebody to have that service at least offered to them so that it's it's something that they can make a conscious choice about mm-hmm. and not end up spending the next you know well not i guess really the rest of their life wondering about right especially in in the world where closed adoptions were the thing that that existed there was no such thing as really open adoptions being pushed then and you mentioned the the difference between the open and closed adoptions so what is it that made you feel like it was such a necessary thing for you guys to create that open adoption where the birth parents could still have some some uh connection with the child the kids could have that connection with their birth parents what is it that made you think that that was so important for a kid when it was not something that general society thought it was so important?
1: Um, well, again, Sherry Eldridge's book had a big impact on me and um, just how important it is. Uh, it, it kind of reinforced my own belief that it was it, honesty is really important um, in every way, and particularly for a child who is not being reached by their biological family. Um, in our case, it, it's a transracial adoption. Um, My daughter's Vietnamese and um, you know, she grew up in a family that does not look like her. Um, And you know, it wasn't going to be a surprise. I mean, like, you know, if we never told her she was adopted, she would have figured it out eventually, you know, and it wouldn't take that long once she got to school. So we didn't ever want that to be a source of stress for her. Um, and the more information we were able to give her, we thought was better. Um, you know, we definitely had concerns and there was definitely, and we, and honestly, even though she's 20, I still have concerns about how much contact she may have with her birth mom. And if her birth mom were to decide she wanted to play a bigger role in my daughter's life, if that would be a helpful thing or a damaging thing for her. Um, but I just. I guess the basic premise that we went on was the importance of honesty and transparency, and to you know give our child the option to have as much information and as much contact as we felt could be had in a healthy way.
0: And I can only imagine that that's also been something that's been very helpful for the birth parents as well, because they're not left with that wondering forever. I, I've talked to a few people who's. Who have maybe uh, had a child adopted out of their family and it's really difficult for them knowing that they'll never know when it's a closed adoption.
1: Yeah. And, you know, fortunately for us, um, both of my children's birth mothers, this is the only child that they placed for adoption. And so I don't know if they appreciate kind of what the alternative would be because they've always had us and we've always let them know how the kids were doing and, you know, as much information as they wanted and needed, we were happy to provide for them. Um, you know, again, as time has gone on, we've become Facebook friends. So, and, and, you know, my Facebook page is pretty much an open book. It's a public page and, you know, they can both see exactly what their kids are doing. You know, they can see pictures of them going to homecoming and my daughter's skating competitions and know that they're happy and healthy and thriving and see, see it for themselves. Um, but they never know any different, knew any different from that. Cause like I said, they were both, this was the only child they placed for adoption. So, but I do definitely feel for, you know, family, you know, families who have, or mothers who have placed a child, um, and, and don't have that. Um, I think it's becoming less and less common just because of the internet and, you know, any child, even if they were in a closed adoption now has lots of different ways to kind of search and try and find out about their biological families.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause we made that mistake with our oldest son, his biological father kind of bounced after, um, after my, my wife and I had him or my wife and, uh, and he had had our son and he just grew up. He just knew me as dad. It was, there was never a good time to tell that story to him. And one day he got a phone call a couple of years ago that said, um, hi, I think I'm your stepbrother. And he's like, um, huh? <laughs> and, you know, we had always intended on telling him when the time was right, but yeah. I had a friend of mine who, who, was in a similar situation. He said, man, at a young age like this, this is not the time. It didn't work out well for him when he had that experience. So we thought we'd wait until he was a little bit older. And then the teen years hit. And where's a good time to introduce a potentially traumatic story into a teenager's life? Because I never found it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so we went through the teen years and he ends up going off to the, off to the army. And then and, and he ended up getting married and there was all the young relationship struggles and all that sort of stuff. There was just never a good time to tell him until one day he called us and said, I have a question.
1: <laughs> oh no.
0: Well, unfortunately, you know, our, he, he's a good kid and he's seen enough of the world. He knows what his life was. He knows what it's been like and he can understand through some of the stories he learned about his, his birth father. That it probably would not have been the best thing if that was his situation growing up with that, and he's been pretty straightforward and honest with us. And he, he, I ask him questions about what he's learned and what he thinks about it, and we can have those conversations. And we are one of the fortunate ones where that has not driven a big wedge into our relationship.
1: You're very lucky. Um, you, You know, it's one of the things that, again, as I wrote this book, it's one of those weird kind of silver linings that that just appear out of nowhere. Um, And really, a lot of my book is about that about kind of signs from the universe and and the universe getting involved in our lives and kind of guiding us. Um, And one of the things through I did a pre sale campaign for my book. And um, part of the pre sale campaign was I had never connected the dots before. Like I was like, oh, my gosh, this book that I just showed you my daughter's baby book, um, that I wrote for her, I, I was like, "This is the first version of Journey to My Daughter, which is my current book." Um, and I'm like, "This this is the simplified version, the the infant version." And so I I did a video reading the book online, and I I offered up to you know through my pre sale campaign, which no one took advantage of um, because I didn't market it. I really didn't market it well, or plan it ahead. It was something that happened. I did a, a 30 day campaign and about halfway through, I made this connection. I was like, Oh my gosh, like light bulb moment. This is, and, and it was so important to me. And I think so health healthy for my kids to always know their story. And like I said, have this concrete version. And I, I offered to, you know, to adoptive families, if they wanted Um, that I would help them write this book for themselves, for their own individual story, because I feel like it's such a healthy thing and such a a great thing for kids to have um, their own story in writing. And again, now with technology, it's so easy. You can go on Shutterfly or, or any of these sites and just drop in your own pictures and write your own text and get a book sent to you and in a week. Um, It's amazing. It didn't, it wasn't that way when I did my daughters. Um, But I just think it, it, it helps bridge that trauma that you mentioned so much when kids, even if they don't know anything, even if they were adopted from China and have no information at all about their birth families to know number one, how much their parents wanted them and how much they had to go through to adopt them from China and, and the amount, not the amount of money, but the amount of work and paperwork and planning that goes into this isn't a haphazard decision of, oh, I think I'll just order baby A from Amazon and have it delivered in 24 hours. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, but whatever it is, their, their origin story that they can go back to and refer to and know how much they were wanted and loved and, and before they ever joined that family.
0: I believe it was Melissa Corkum we talked to a while back, and she mentioned that well, there was a study that asked adoptive kids or what, how often they thought about their parents, and they asked the adoptive parents how often they thought their kids thought about their biological parents. And most of, the, most of the adoptive parents thought that their kids probably thought about their biological parents at least once or twice a week. And what the study showed from the kids was that it was, it was every day. It was every day of their life. It was a question that was in their mind. And the thing is, is if you don't tell them stories, they write stories. Yeah. I have a little guy right now. We adopted him more or less, not quite at birth. He, he was actually in foster care at birth and we adopted him um, just a couple of weeks after he was uh, born and or, I'm sorry, we, we got him into our home a couple of weeks after he was born. He stayed with us and, and after the termination of parental rights, he was available and we adopted him. Now, he will tell you this story that I think is wildly interesting, especially if, if, if you follow any of the psychologist stuff, um, Jordan Peterson has talked a lot about some of these things, these archetypal stories, the, these things that are in everyone's mind, and he has this whole story he told me once about how him and his dad were somewhere, his biological dad, they were somewhere, and there was there was these snakes there that were trying to kill them, and and his dad and his mom put him up in this tree, and he was in this tree where he was safe while they killed all the snakes, but the snakes managed to kill him, you know, they killed them, killed his parents. And and these snakes, you know, after they killed his parents and they went away and then the, the foster care people came and took him and brought him to to foster care. And then that's how we got him. And yeah. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> at about four or five years old is when he told me this story. And he mm-hmm. still has some version similar to it that, you know, we, we talk about it at age appropriate levels as best we can, but but this is a story he built in his head. And I think, you know, the whole snake thing and all the archetypal stories, if, if you follow any of that, and, you know, I think that comes out of Carl Jung and some of those people. So it's just amazing that you can see that much still in their head, proving that psychology, the field is, it's a bit of an art form, but it also, there's some real stuff there. And he has a story that he built. Yeah. He built this whole story in his mind while I wasn't even paying attention to it. I have no idea where that came from. And so we talk about his story with him
1: now. That's which is wonderful. And um, um, one of the things I actually learned in school um, was that children grow up seeing themselves as their same sex parent. And even in cases of adoption, whatever small, tiny nuggets. They have of information about their biological parent. They will identify with that, even though this isn't the parent that raised them. So I remember learning this in in class um, when I went to grad school about that. You know, if they heard their birth mom was, you know, a, a, a homeless person, and you know, whatever that that you know, studies had shown that adopted children will say, oh, well, you know, I know someday I'm going to be homeless or, you know, whatever teeny tiny bit of information they had. So again, that was something that, you know, I don't know if it was conscious in my mind or if it was subconscious. I don't really remember, but I felt like it was really always very important to dictate exactly how our children thought of their biological parents. So, you know, again, in this book that it's so funny that like, I hadn't even, these books were like collecting dust on the shelf, you know, get my kids, my youngest is 15. So we hadn't opened these books in, in years. And I pulled this out and, um, and, and I was very deliberate. You know, what I said was, You know, and I can just go back and read. I said, mommy made lots of phone calls all over the country. She talked to lots and lots of people asking if they knew where mommy and daddy's baby might be. And I said at the very same time, and I don't want to say the name, her birth mom found a baby in her tummy. She loved this baby, but knew that she could not take care of a baby. She would need to find the baby's mommy. And I said, when she gave birth to the baby, she was very sad. She loved this baby. She knew that she had to find the baby's mommy who could take care of her do you, uh, she got on the phone and called a lady named Virginia. Virginia had talked to mommy on the phone and she knew right where mommy was. She told her not to worry. Then Virginia called mommy to tell her that they had, she had found mommy and daddy's baby. The baby was in Oklahoma. So, you know, I was very deliberate about always wanting that to be a positive message. And I think that's um, a message that sometimes adoptive parents lose, that they want to create a bond with the child and kind of demonize the biological child so that the allegiance is not there and that they don't identify with that biological parent in the same way, which I think does a disservice to the child um, because that that allegiance is going to be there, just it's ingrained. So Why not give that gift to your child of thinking of their birth parents in a positive way um, and that they loved them and were making the decision that they felt was best for them.
0: Wow. I think that's incredibly valuable for, for especially for foster families to realize that because in our, in our situation, when a kid comes into foster care, it's almost always has some negative story attached to it,
1: Mm.
0: you know, and even if it's not true, Somebody right. has been accused of something. And when a kid asks you, you know, well, why? If you answer that question in a honest way, and and I'm going to just, just swing a little bit old school Bible here, because one of the things I, I think we all need to learn a little bit more of is, you know, the Bible talks about not lying. Um, it also talks about love a lot. And there's a line in there that talks about speaking the truth in love and finding a way to tell that true story in a way that is still loving to a child is is really difficult but I, I think wildly important especially like i said for the foster families where you have a kid who maybe was born addicted where you have a kid who was maybe abused or neglected or put in a dangerous situation and it's really easy to tell those stories because that's the real reason they're in care yeah and then you identify them with somebody who's been through some really difficult things
1: well, and, and it's one of those things that I remember when we when we were first waiting in the adoption process, waiting, you know, my husband and I, I don't know how it came up, but we had a discussion about there's no happy story that you can come up with that leads to a child being placed for adoption. Even if you come up with the most beautiful story you can come up with, it's a princess who got pregnant out of wedlock. And because the child didn't have royal blood, she needed to place. It's still a tragic story. Like it doesn't matter what you know, it it has to be a, a tragic story that any biological parent, whether it's because the mother died in childbirth, you know, anything, it's a sad story. Um, but you can reframe any of those stories to be positive. And even if you have a child who was abused and neglected, you can you can tell that child, look your birth mom she had lots of challenges in her life and she had lots of difficulties in her life and she did the best that she could but people came in to help her and they realized that she she just wasn't even though she was doing the best that she could she was just not able to take care of you in the way that that the world and we all knew you needed and so you know she agreed whether she agreed or not um that having us raise you was going to be better for you and give you a better chance at life. So she allowed for that to happen, even though she loved you and would have liked to have taken care of you herself.
0: Wow. That's such an important thing that I really wish somebody was around 12 years ago to have taught me. Cause I did not learn that when we first stepped into this, I didn't know those parts of it. I, I think by the time you've done, done this stuff for and lived these lives for you know a decade, you, you deserve some sort of honorary um, experiential degree because you've had to learn so much. But when you don't learn this stuff ahead of time, it really changes the way that, that you're able to, to step into a child's life, whether it's as a friend or, or as, as an adoptive parent as well, because that has that, those stories have not always been told the best way, even in our own household. You know, mm-hmm. we have kids who've come from hard places, and you, you see some of these disorders and, and, and things that, that come out of their trauma, and you don't always know how to deal with that when you have a kid. I and mean, we have one particular son right now who's he's dealing with some pretty serious dissociation, and yeah. it wasn't until we found a good therapist, a good play therapist, who could stand up and say, oh, yeah, here's, here's where this is coming from. Here's what this means. And here's how you can talk about it with him in a way that's that's beneficial. And, you know, it was like, oh, wow, <laughs> we need to know this. And she sent out a questionnaire for my wife and I both to fill out about him. And then she sent us each one about our own background. And it was funny because it got like halfway through it. And when she asked me about it, I'm like, I got halfway through it. And I decided I don't like you anymore. And she kind of looks at me. If I said, "You're you're you're talking about me here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is one of my own negative coping mechanisms that I never truly understood that I deal with. And, and it just took a couple of conversations to start working on some of that on my own life so that I can help him. But as long as we don't have that information, we don't know how to do better. We're not going to do better.
1: Well, and, and it's not always easy. I mean, I will admit, I can't, I can't claim that, you know, we were perfect and always presented to the birth parents and the, because there were definitely times in her teen years when my daughter would come to me and say, oh, I'd rather just go live with my birth mom. And I can't say that I reacted in the best way. I, I know that I said, oh, you want that? Look at how your biological brother and sister are growing up and look at the things that they don't have and the opportunities that you have. And okay, that's fine. You want to give up this and this and this and this? Sure, go live with your birth mom. Um, So, I mean, we all have moments like that. You know, fortunately, again, there's this concrete story that she's had for, you know, 15 years at that point um, of her birth mother placed her in love and we adopted her in love. And this was all kind of orchestrated by the universe that we were supposed to raise her. Um, so she knew that in her, her heart. Um, but we all slip. We all have moments where we say, you want to go? You want to go back? Well, look at what you'd be living in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey,
0: I have biological kids. <laughs> I wanted to send to somebody else in the past. I know those moments, they happen for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's so difficult. But um, we've talked a lot about this book, and we're going to have you back uh, when this book is getting ready to to be published. So, um, what's the name of the book?
1: The book is called Journey to My Daughter, and um, and that's the website also. It's journeytomydaughter.com. and you can find out you know a little bit of information. I have a video trailer. It's actually it's coming up pretty quick. It'll be a, a published in about two months, which is very exciting, um, should be right around the end of the year. Sometime in December, it will be available on Amazon. Um, but it's called journey to my daughter, which is the, the tight, the only title it's ever had <laughs> a lot of my friends who have written books changed their title. When I wrote this back in 2007, I wrote it just for my daughter. That was the title. That was just the way it came in my mind. And I've never ever been able to think of it with anything else. Um, and it's, it's the story of her adoption and everything I went through to find her. But enmeshed in that is kind of the story of, again, this this theme of the universe and um and seeing the signs that I was headed in the wrong direction and trying to recognize that, OK, you know, the universe has told me this eight times already. Maybe the ninth when they hit me over the head with a tornado, I might recognize that this is not the direction I should be heading. Um, and, and that was really, really powerful for me. Um, that kind of, this was all a, it's a little bit of a voodoo kind of idea. And I'm not really that type of a person, but that this is all meant to be. And there's kind of this, this prescribed path that we we can stray from, but we're going to be pulled back towards it because, um, our, our lives are going to be a lot easier if we're, if we're able to recognize and listen to those signs. and and that's what makes um, kind of that waiting process in the ador- in the adoption journey or foster care journey um, a little bit easier to swallow is that okay, you just you need to wait because the right child hasn't become available yet. And the universe will make sure that you know when it is. And no matter how hard you push and call the agency over and over and over again if that child hasn't been born yet, it, it's not going to make a difference.
0: Absolutely. You know, I, I quote a line from an old Van Zant song, I believe it is, that I love so much. And, and whether you believe you call it God or the universe, but the line is, if you want to hear God laugh, just tell him your plans.
1: <laughs> That's I, great.
0: I'm so convinced that there's a plan that, that, that we're we're going to follow part of that plan, regardless if we want to or not. We'll have some decisions to make along the way. And sometimes you do need to be hit over the head the ninth time by by the universe or by God or by whatever it is that that's trying to tell you something. And if you're not, if you're choosing not to listen, you're going to eventually listen. Um, It's just a matter of how much pain you're willing to go through until you get there.
1: Well, and, and it's, it's funny because this is a, it's kind of a theory I came up with as a child. Um, And, and I look back and remember telling my friends when I was maybe nine, 10 years old um, that I felt like, there was a path that we're meant to to go on and we can make choices to stray off of that path. And we're, we're human beings. We have freedom of will and we can make those choices. Um, And I often fought those choices. I often chose the path less traveled many times through my life. Um, I, I made lots and lots of those kind of difficult choices that were not the easy way out. And I learned from them. And I'm not sorry that I made those choices, but repeatedly I was kind of led back to this is the the direction you should be headed.
0: Well, yeah, eventually we all get there. We just have to <laughs> have to have the appropriate level of pain before we get there. So I just want to thank you for coming in here and telling your story today and talking about it. I look forward to talking to you again so that, we, you know, that'll come out right around the book launch time. That way we can throw up a link in there. Um, so, anybody who wants to hear or find the book, um, have you have you thought about Audible or any um, yeah audio books yet, or or are you just print?
1: Um, I will be recording the audio version. Um, that won't come out till sometime in twenty twenty two. The production of that doesn't doesn't happen right away, um, but it will be available on um, you know a, a digital version and in paperback um in december and then sometime later in 2022 um i'm going to narrate it myself um and and uh, i'm going to be producing an audiobook
0: wonderful yeah cuz i i'm one of the people who really appreciate the fact that people make the audiobooks because when you drive all day every day 5 days a week you know for a living and having the the ability to sit and read a book it just doesn't come around very often but listening Especially when someone can narrate it for themselves and being able to hear somebody tell their story in their voice when they know the emotion behind that story. You you just connect so well with that. And it's just a very personal experience. So I'm glad to hear you're going to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I do the same things. I um I always have four books going at once. I have little playaways that I listen to and I listen to one in my car and one um on my phone. And then I have one that is a physical book that I'm reading that I usually only have time to read when I'm waiting at a doctor's office or getting my hair done. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I am definitely even the books that I do have time to read visually. I don't absorb that information as well. So that's why I was really insistent upon making an audio book for the version for this book.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm, I'm more of a, uh, um, audio learner when it comes to that sort of thing that really sits well with me so for for people like me we appreciate you putting in that work absolutely well thank you for coming in and telling your story today it's it's amazing to hear a story like this that has turned out so well because of of somebody who maybe isn't perfect but has done the work to to do the best job you can to help a, help a kid out or maybe three and uh and inspire others to do the
1: same well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed the discussion and and uh, it's totally different from any other discussion I've had about the book before. So this has been really great.
0: Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Jennifer's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you would like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. Don't forget, we have a Patreon where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercare nation.com. And as always,
1: you are so super awesome. I thank you, guys. So cool, 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 Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening. Zank, sang
0: Unparalleled oh, Studios. Unparalleled Studios.